I want to take a minute and talk about Shop Boss. It's the ultimate solution for automotive shop management. It's built by industry experts with real-world experience. In fact, the founder was a former shop owner himself. Now, Shop Boss is designed to be user-friendly, making it easy to set up, learn, and teach your team with Boss Pay, powered by 360 Payments. Enjoy integrated payments with digital signature capture, text-to-text pay, PayPal, and Venmo options, consumer financing, and now surcharging, all seamlessly integrated into Shop Boss. Say goodbye to the hassle of managing separate sets of books. Everything you need is built right in. But that's not all. ShopBoss also offers built-in DVI functionality, eliminating need for third-party solutions. Plus, with profit per hour, maximize your profit on every job sold, ensuring that advisors, techs, and owners are all working together to make each job profitable. Experience the power of ShopBoss today and see why thousands of shop owners trust them to simplify their operations, drive success, and run their business like a boss. My name is Jimmy Purdy, shop owner, master tech, transmission builder, and the host of the Gearbox Podcast. Here I talk with new and seasoned shop owners as well as industry professionals about day-to-day operations within their own shops and all the failures and successes that come along the way. From what grinds your gears to having to shift gears in the automotive industry, this is the Gearbox Podcast. Okay. Otherwise I'll forget to push record again. It always sucks when you're half hour into a conversation and then all of a sudden you're like, oh yeah, I should probably start recording. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you to coming on. Yeah, I, I, you know, I have a YouTube channel. I started a year ago, and I tried doing live sessions, and I was just, you know, uh, it's it's difficult. Like my hats off to you because for one, I'm not the narrator type, and I enjoy making videos. I have a hundred videos on my YouTube channel, and they're all like random. Uh, you know, videos like how I diagnose this, how I diagnose that, but like just right to the point, like there's no, like me talking about anything. It's just like, this is what I did. And then that's it in the video. So what's the yeah. name of your channel? It's OCD auto. So OCD auto. yeah, I've got, I mean, like the biggest view I have is for, I did a review on the, uh, basically the four cylinder turbo and the Wrangler, the, that engine, I, I did a like a really lengthy review that was also overlapped with me. I had, I had a GoPro on, I was doing spark plugs and bore scoping the uh, cylinders on this 2.0 turbo Wrangler and like a 19 Wrangler. And um, anyways, yeah, I just thought, well, I've got all this video footage. I can't really, it's like, I got to say something. So I just started talking about like the different versions of the engine. And I just, I thought, well, I'll put it, after I do this, I, I thought, well, I'll put it in a Jeep forum and the Jeep forum, you know, that's one thing I found that's really helpful. If you're going to make videos on a channel is you got to plan them in different forums so people can actually see them. So. Yeah, that's, yeah, I don't, I don't do videos. <laughs> that's, yeah. It's, one thing I've never really dabbled into is doing the YouTube videos. It, it seems just like a lot of work. It is a lot of work. I mean, I, you know, like the guys that are doing it well have learned to edit on the fly or do no editing. And they're just like, here, I'm going to just wear this camera all day. And some of the guys have a lot of subscribers and yeah, they have good advice, but they're not always, you know, telling the shop owners what's going on. Like, so 
that could be bad for the shop if the sh- if that person that has a channel at that dealership, for example, you know, doesn't disclose that to the general managers. And like, next thing you know, you got the car companies knocking on the door, like, "Hey, why is this? Why are you doing this in our franchise?" So, that could be yeah, that's true. How, how do you feel about that? About gatekeepers? Because I know a lot of the time when we talk about like YouTube channels, and there's a lot of um, really, really talented guys that are on there now, right? Um, but there's the other side of the coin where it's like they want to gatekeep like, oh, you, you're just ruining the industry because you're giving away all the secrets. <laughs> yeah, I think that uh, we're kind of past hold like so guys like you and me, you know, I've been doing it for 20 something years, probably 21 years. And anyways, I was raised with guys that held on to the knowledge and they didn't really share it. And that was because there was no internet. And if there was, it wasn't affordable. And now that you have a database of great videos on every car repair trouble code you can think of, um, you know, you just got to know where to look. It's, you know, I think it's, there's no, there's no holding on to knowledge anymore because that guy that holds on to the knowledge and gatekeeps is now not really being helpful. And, and at that point, there's someone else that's got that knowledge and that's put it on YouTube at this point. So, um, but I am in a forum I pay to be in called Diagnostic Network and it's $50 a mm-hmm. year. I highly recommend it. And what we do is we take our, let's say a Prius, been to the dealer, been to all kinds of places, still had a misfire, cold start misfire on 11 Prius. Well, every shop was like, oh, it needs a head gasket. Well, the head gasket was just done. But um, there was a little bit of coolant getting in the cylinder, but in the end, like the conclusion was it was missing one of the rockers, one of the valves was never opening. But like I document in this diagnostic network, the start to finish, sometimes videos too, and how we got there, what codes we had, or like what maybe monitors not setting on a vehicle, really complicated stuff, can network issues. And we document our process and it's really helpful for beginners and, and stuff like that. And without that type of help, I mean, the independent shops, don't have what the dealers have. When you're at a dealership, you have, you know, a tech department that you call up or that you email or whatever and say, Hey, look, I've got this, this 17 Ram. It's not setting the Knox monitor. What do I do? And they kind of guide you through it. Not to say that they're engineers. These are retired mechanics, ASC mechanics, and they're sitting at a desk, usually in Detroit. And they typically are retired in the area that you need help with. And they're like, okay, well, let's go ahead and try this, this, and this. Or we know of this, you know, merging problem because we have a million dealerships to look at the repair orders on. Kind of like when you go on Pro Demand and it says most common fixes, dealer has that same thing. Or or Identifix or any of those kind of Right. So we're, we're basically, nowadays, we're all connected to one another without us realizing it or not. So even at an independent shop... Or AutoZone, you know, everyone catalogs everything. Everything's a statistic now. So if you need in the future, if you need to figure out a complicated trouble code, you somewhere on the internet is a database that probably has great notes on how to diagnose that random car issue. And eventually, yeah, it might get to the point where you just type in these trouble codes, but you still need someone to deep think the problem because yeah, that might have worked for that one, that rocker arm missing, but that doesn't mean that's the only cause of a misfire, you know? And so right, exactly. That, yep. I mean, in the end, you still have to have someone able to critical think through it, and that's where we come in, so. 
Yeah, it's just like the advent of like, oh, computers are going to take our, or, or robots are going to take our job or AI is going to take our job, right? Like there's no way because, and that was like, that's a great point you brought up because that's exactly how I think about it too. Sure, you have the gatekeepers out there that want to say, um, or the guys that say they're gatekeeping and you're going to give away all the secrets, but uh, th- you can't because that code, there's so many different issues for that code. There's so many different issues that can cause that symptom, right? And sure, there's certain things that like, like a loose wheel bearing. Well, there's not much more than a loose wheel, wheel bearing that's going to cause that. But when you're talking about like high level diag stuff, it's just, there's no way. There's no way you could say, a mis- like you said, a misfire is only going to be a rocker arm or it's only going to be a spark plug or it's only going to be a bad core or whatever. Uh, I mean, there's no, <laughs> even looking at, you, you could take some of that information. Like if you start looking into fuel trims and, and whatnot, you could probably narrow it down to maybe two or three different things instead of 15, but you still, you still need, you still need a body there. You still need a body there to check it and and actually verify those last two components. It's 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 not a perfect science. <laughs> yeah, one of you know? the so I dealt with a lot of lemon law vehicles for new cars and and you know the way it works with Chrysler is if you have a Jeep Wrangler that has three attempts at a repair and it's still under some type of warranty, it gets bought back and then it goes to a buyback dealership. And that's usually in like LA or San Francisco. And there's one or two in each state that are buyback dealership and they're a normal dealership, usually a big dealership in a big city, but they also, they deal with all the lemon law buyback cars and they try and fix them. And quite often you'll see cars getting bought back for, cause Chrysler to turn on their modules, they have to use the CAN network because it's cheaper. They can't afford another set of copper wires for ignition anymore, so they cut the cost. Now all the modules are CAN network triggered on, so to wake them up, you know, to, you got that going on. But well, the problem with that is every every little loose connection um, on that CAN network, so any harness connectors that are overspread, if you hit a bump and it momentarily t- goes open on the CAN high or CAN low, that could be that could actually be translated as a signal in hex code that, hey, we want to shut down your radio or we want to shut down the cluster. We want to shut down maybe half the network. So I've seen that a lot where you, you know, you have, I've seen these dealers replace every module and then what caused it? Well, a loose pin, a harness connector pin that was for the CAN higher CAN low because they're so reliant on CAN network to keep these modules alive. And so think, you know, like nowadays you don't need mechanics as much as you need electricians and you need some guys that understand that. And that's a really scary subject. I could talk about that for hours because they did, they did, yeah, they did assessments and 85% of the guys were not passing the necessary levels for the hybrid and electric cars that are coming. So, well, it's, it's high level electronic diagnostic too. It's not, you know, it's, it's, it's. You're talking about CAN bus networks, networking. And like you yeah, said, it's, it's, momentar- it's the momentarily switching. And I've had so I've had AC compressors, you know, you disconnect it and plug it back in and uh and the and the connection for whatever reason doesn't who knows what, but then it comes back because it's got the AC's not working. You unplug it, plug it back in again, and then it starts working. And then you're like, Well, what what happened here? <laughs> it's like it's just a just a loose pin fitment. And it's like but that could get even deeper when you're talking about modules, body control modules. I mean, anything on the cat network, it's like, and then you ask guys, Hey, what's a breakout box? And they're like, looking at you cross-eyed. You're like, really? Cause 
that's like step one. Like <laughs> that's such a low level way of 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 testing your CAN network. If you don't know what a breakout box is, like you have no business, you know, trying to diagnose a CAN network fault. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You get a U code, and it's like they just oh, it must need a computer because it has a U code. I, you know, lately I've been on a journey to take any uh, no communication modules. Like I have a twenty-year-old Eek Five Ford module, and it would lose communication. And you know, I'm in there on the circuit board. I'm taking this computer apart. I've got a mic- microscope and a lab scope, picoscope, and I'm like <laughs> checking this and that. Well, there's no data sheets on these Ford Eek Five computers at all. And I, in the form that I am, I'm in, there's engineers in there as well. And the engineer was like, oh yeah, I helped design that chip. I helped design that Ford. You know, I would work for Ford. I was a Ford engineer. We designed that circuitry. And of course, like he's not going to even give up a lot of it because it's not public knowledge. So, you know, like that's the other problem is when Henry Ford came out with cars a hundred years ago, you had a carburetor that you could open up on your bench in the garage at home and you'd be like, okay, I can, I can sketch a copy of this or I can take out a harness of the Model T and, and sketch a diagram of how it goes. And then, you know, maybe I start a shop. But nowadays you have, you know, circuitry that is, there's no information on that. Like if you want to repair a circuit board, yeah, you can look at blown capacitors and replace capacitors, but if there's nothing visually wrong with it, you know, good luck trying to diagnose it. And so a lot of what we run into is like the industry wants smart guys that can see into the board and understand every part of it. And then, but we don't want to give the information away. There's no right to repair. You know, there's no like the car companies, even though they know all the other car companies are using the same Motorola chipset. Like they don't want to give out any information because, you know, God forbid somebody figures out how to repair these computers for 20 bucks, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It just opens up a whole new. I mean, they want to, car companies want to sell new cars. And so like I've, you know, the only way I've found out how to repair uh, circuit boards is just getting a lot of uh, help from people that, rebuild them for a living and just ask them, you know, nicely, like, Hey, how do you do this? How do you do that? And they just make notes and they just have ways of reverse engineering it. So. Yeah. Would, yeah. I mean, as far as module repair, that's pretty, it's, it's almost, it's one of those things you cut to the chase when you're talking about running a business and then you're going to open up this computer and try to figure out what's wrong on the circuit board. I mean, obviously you just, you just buy a new computer and you just, like if that's what the issue is, you just buy a module, right? I mean, I don't know how how you'd be able to charge to like go in and say, well, I'll look inside of it and see if I can find what's wrong with it. I mean, it's kind of like back in the early days with with automatic transmissions and not having a flow chart in the valve body, you know, like you just replace the valve body, you know, but now we have so much information out there where you can test passages, you can use a vacuum tester. And, and so kind of on that point of like, being able to look inside and know exactly how all those processes and all those things are working and be able to identify what the problem is and fix that circuit. Um, I mean, it's just planned obsolescence. You know, it's like the same with alternators. Nobody fixes alternators anymore or starter motors. <laughs> it's like, yeah. it's like you just buy the new one. And now they're doing that with the cars. It's like they're making these cars. It's like you, you just replace it. You got a bad module where there's nine of them. And they all have to be replaced at the same time. So it's going to be like 15 grand and you're like, well, I'll just buy a new car. You're like, what are you talking about? All because of, you know, who knows why that module failed, but it's just crazy, especially with the Stellantis and the Chrysler. I mean, getting into that high level module repair and replacement, it's like, you know, 
I can't blame most shops for wanting to stay out of that, you know? Um, and I feel like the spot for the mobile tech, cause you're, you're mobile, right? Yeah. I'm mobile. Yeah. So I feel like that's where that spot has opened up and allowed the mobile high level mobile techs to come in and kind of fill that void where, where the, the brick and mortar stores just stay in and they just do the maintenance work. They do the low level B level, you know, if you want to call it B level tech work, just the stuff that's in and out. As soon as something complicated comes up or a problem arises to invest in all that, it's, that's a steep. It's just like with ADAS It's like, do we invest in ADAS now? Do we, do we set a whole bay up in the shop and take all that real estate for these ADAS problems? Is anybody actually going to want to fix these problems? Is it, it's like, where is this going? And it's the same gearing up for a lot of that high level diagnostic stuff. You're, you're relying on one tech in that shop to do that because typically the owner's not going to have the time to do it. No. So it's, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough situation, but I feel like that mobile tech is, is where that void's being filled and that what's, what makes the most sense. Yeah, you know, I so I started out a year ago because all my career I was always like the diagnostic and electrical guy, drivability electrical. Um, you know, I do diesels and engine work, and I enjoyed doing engine work, but I've got a bad back, and so that had to stop. But um, yeah, I you know I originally got into the industry in 1999 after going to UTI in Phoenix, and I took hot rod performance. And I learned how to, you know, I got associate screen automotive and then I took the extra course for three months to learn how to build race motors. And I almost got on with like NASCAR and a pit crew. And I was like, you know what, that's just, I, I can't travel. So I ended up, you know, I grew up in Fresno, I ended up just, you know, working at electric laboratories in Fresno and it was like a hundred year old shop in Fresno, the best electrical shop in California, in my opinion. And they learned, you know, they learned, they taught me how to use all the factory scan tools back in the day when those were not even close to affordable for most shops. They had every factory scan tool. And I just kind of went from there and realized, okay, well, one day I want to open up a shop that that's all I do is diagnosing and lots of electrical. And so like now I'm doing it and I go to shops and I'm like, hey, I can help you with problem vehicles, this and that. And it's hard to prove that like somebody can even do that. And sometimes it's ego too, where the shop maybe, and you know, no one tells you why maybe they don't call you. Maybe they don't like me, but um, it's hard for me to prove that I can help more than they can in that situation. Not that I'm smarter than anybody, but it, it usually has to do with like, you have to have somebody completely disconnected from the normal eight hour shift to focus on some of these problems. You can't have somebody thinking about a brake job coming in in the morning and diagnose something late in the evening that's complicated. That's a, that's a good point, yeah. You can't, you gotta have a, a clean slate. And like some, that's what the dealerships prosper is because they have a tech rep. When, it, when you know, stuff hits a fan, they got somebody that can come in that's got associates in automotive like I do and you do possibly. And you got somebody that is like tied directly with engineer cell phone numbers. And he's like, okay, we'll get this done. And he's got engineering level software scan tools. He can change VIN numbers. He can get used computers to work. Like he's the guy. But the problem is now is like there's so many shops and dealers that need that tech rep with like Chrysler that they're backed up a month to two months to get them out to a dealer. And it's only getting worse because yeah, shortages, but um, yeah, it's just, I don't know, just going on a ramp, but basically my business has been somewhat successful, but I haven't done a lot of advertising either. I tend to stick 
you know, with the close by shops. And I just like start to get to know shop owners and try and figure out some of them are like, no, we don't need any help. You know, we send it to this shop. Totally fine. You know, I went and hit up uh, Caliber Collision and they're like, oh, no, we have in-house. So I called the CEO of Caliber Collision in Texas. I was like, hey, you sure you don't need me? He's like, well, no, no, we just bought a company like yours. And that's all he did was do what you're doing. So keep on doing it. Keep on fighting. You know, but we just bought some guy and his rolling diagnostic equipment vehicle and his employees. And now they do it for Caliber on the West Coast. They just go and program stuff, deal with CAN network and crash cars. That's all they do. And so that's kind of what I want to do. But it's hard because either they have somebody already if they're a franchise or they don't know who I am and they don't know. I don't know. I'm not really a great salesperson. So, yeah, yeah. typically, um, yeah, typically technicians aren't the best salespeople. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's that's usually how that works. It's like most tech turn owners, that's usually where the, the, the failing goes because it's like, I don't know, it's like having an interview and you're, and you're hiring someone on for your team and it's like you just don't know what's going on in their head and you're asking all these questions and it's like, I don't even know what questions I need to ask you to get what I want out of you. You know, it's like you almost just got to go sit down and like hang out for an hour to figure out who each other are. But even then, it's still, I've hired guys and it's taken 90 days. It's taken past the probation date, like 100 days before they do something. I'm like, oh, okay. It's like, because you're never going to see the same car twice in a month. You know, it's like, so until you finally get that shining star comes in, it's like, oh, I see where you shine now. Now we can, now I know what to market for. Now I know what to bring in. Now I know what you're going to be good for. Cause there's just so much in the auto industry that you could be good and bad at. And, you know, if a guy doesn't like changing oil and he's like fantastic at can bus diagnostics, like that's still a very, very big asset to your shop. But if you got him sitting there doing oil changes all day, then you're just like, why did I hire this guy? <laughs> Like you'll never find out who he is. It's like, it just takes so long. And so I got all, and I, so on that point of like technician turn owner, like a client comes in and it's like, trust me, I can fix it. It's like, what do you mean? Trust you. I don't even know who you are. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't, I don't know. Like, what do you, what do you, what do you mean? Like you're, it's, it's just, it's such a hard thing to try to convey when you're, when you're making that position, that's, that pivot from being a, an auto technician to an owner. It's like, okay, I got to stop being a tech when I'm talking to this customer. Cause you go in there and start giving them all kinds of bullshit. They don't want to hear about <laughs> like, all, all they right. want to know is that you're going to fix it. You're going to take care of them. They don't need to know all that other stuff. Yeah. And you know, like I also am not advertising that much because I learned quickly what shops need the most help with. It's like P zero 300 codes because most shops, if it's a can network or electrical issue, they're not even going to call me because they're sending them directly to the dealership. That's how that seems to go. Like, Oh, just go to the dealership. Well, what does happen? I see a lot of is like, Oh, we put a LKQ motor in it and we got a P0 300. And it's like, okay, well let me look at it. And sure enough, you do a relative compression on this Triton motor and it shows it's cylinder two misfiring. Okay. But compression, good mechanical gauges, everything looks good. And you're like, well, let me put a pressure transducer in it. And so one of the first jobs I got at the beginning of the year was like, I've got this nice expensive PicoScope pressure transducer kit. And I'm like, I'm looking at it and I'm like, thank God I'm in this forum, this diagnostic network. But even then, I could not tell you exactly why. It was a mechanical issue, but I couldn't say exactly why it was, you know, causing the misfire. Um, And 
all the senior guys, senior pressure transducer shop owners in this network were like, you know, well, try this, try that. And I can't keep going back out of town to keep looking at it. So I gather as much data as I can on the time that I was there at that shop. And then I spend a few days reviewing it. And then maybe I get another call a month later. Hey, I got a P03 whatever misfire code on this 300,000 mile Vortec. And then I slowly get better at it. And I slowly recognize like what is causing what, but there's no, unfortunately working at the dealership there, I didn't have the money for all this equipment. You know, I didn't have pressure transducer stuff that was kind of never required. And now at Dodge dealers, they require, they supply a picoscope to all Dodge dealers now, but they don't supply pressure transducers to stick, stick in the cylinder, basically to check cylinder um, performance on the pressure transducer, which that you can actually, you know, go in the wrong direction if you're not really familiar with scopes because you're like, oh, well, I think I know what that means. There's no for sure answer uh, with scopes, you know, like you really have to dive deep. So it's a little scary sometimes. Yeah. Well, and on that point, it was, you're always looking at a broken vehicle. So I, I, I even imagine like at the dealership, I'm sure they don't get a lot of time to like pull in a normally good running vehicle and be like, can I just pull some waveforms off of this to see what it's supposed to look like? So everyone always bol- pulls the scope out when there's a problem. And I mean, I think we're all kind of guilty of doing that. It just sits on the shelf until we get this complex problem from another shop or something just goes south and then you want to pull the scope out. But it's not, it's not, I mean, not to say a scan tool gives you the answer, but the scope's not going to identify what the problem is or, or say like, give you a little red section. It's like, okay, this is, this is where it doesn't look right. You know what I mean? So it's like you got to constantly be looking at it. And on all that note of like using the the WPS 5000, that pressure transducer, it's like it takes so long to learn like, oh, the towers, if they're leaning, if they're not leaning and like and looking at the valve overlap and, and seeing, you know, being able to overlay like the timing sequence of the cylinders to see, okay, this is at 30 degree, 30 degree, 30 and being able to differentiate, oh, well, the intake valve's not opening soon enough or, or, or the exhaust valve's opening too late or, or whatever. Like you can identify all that stuff, but there's no like playbook for that. Oh, you yeah. know, I know, oh, I don't yeah. know if you've ever watched Bernie Thompson at eight on ATS. So it's like in his scan tool, he's got all that programming built into it. It's like, okay, well, that makes it a lot more user-friendly than the Pico, but they both do the same thing. So I hear that all the time. The question is like, oh, which which lab scope should I buy? It's like, well, what do yeah, you know? That's a common discussion <laughs> like, in the forum you know? diagnostic network. And so $8,000, I think, for a good eight-channel ATS scope that Bernie Thompson, uh, he designs that stuff. And he's really, really smart guy. But um, right. yeah, he's next level, like, he, 20 years ago, must have started doing what I was doing. I was like, well, let me just start figuring out electrical engineering and somehow got so good at it. And I'm sure he networks with engineers that actually do it for a living and designed, you know, chipsets. But yeah, you're right. I mean, the, my best advice, because I really want to put on a class because I have some really good, really good data on good vehicles like Hemi's. I have good vehicles that I pulled from the dealer and then I have not good vehicles for relative compression, good, not good, um, cam lifter and cam load wear on Hemi's. I've got good data on. So I've got, you know, that stuff is really useful. 
um, like what to look for if the intake lobe is worn on a relative compression versus uh, exhaust lobe worn or that lifter's roller on a Hemi. Um, like little things like that. But that's only useful for guys that work on Dodges every day, you know. Um, and usually the Dodge dealers, you know, like they just go with process eliminations like or usually they can hear it like, oh, I hear that that lifter noise. Um, you know, you move the coil on a Hemi, really easy to do. Move the injector and plugs, really easy to do. It's still misfiring. Okay, well, let's tear the motor apart. Simple pushrod motor. Like, there's no real need for a scope. But I'll, te I'll tell you, like, Chrysler, now that they're owned right. by Stellantis, yeah. Chrysler is now a European car company. There's nothing American about Chrysler Dodge Bram anymore. Um, you know, they're owned by, you know, Peugeot and, and Fiat. And at this point, the next motors coming out in the Ram pickup are going to be twin turbo inline sixes and the Hemi's going away. You know, the cars with Hemi's are just not going to exist in a year or two. Um, that's going to be now everything that you see is going to be like a BMW under the hood of an American Ram or Charger. Um, like these engines are not going to be easy to diagnose anymore because there's so much stacked on them. And so you have, now I feel like you have a need to, and that's probably why they're pushing the scopes. You have a need to have quick diagnostic capability for a sticky valve or a leaky valve because these are such high worked engines with twin turbos. You know, you're going to start seeing a lot of sticky carboned up valves now on Dodges. You're going to start seeing burnt valves and you need some way of detecting that. And one good way of detecting that is that intake uh, attached pulse sensor. They call them first look sensors sometimes. Maybe one in the exhaust and look for an anomaly. But again, they're, they're not training any of the techs at the dealer level to use any of that stuff, even though it's an accessory of the stuff they mandated they use. But um, like that learning curve, I don't think they'll ever really get anyone on that level because it's all voluntary. Everyone that I've talked to that has uh, a PicoScope WPS 500X and stuff like that and different sensors and they spent thousands in maybe ATS scope. Well, those guys are usually doing that with their own credit card as technicians at dealerships. The shops aren't paying for that. So that, yeah. Right. Well, even at indep even independent repair shops, it's pretty rare to find a, an owner that's going to buy their tech that. Maybe they'll have it there at the shop, but yeah, it's it's an it's quite an investment, and you know for yeah, and then you got to train them, and it's like you're you're looking for the return on investment, right? I mean, obviously at the end of the day, yeah, you want your techs to be trained, you want to be well supplied, but um, you buy you know an eight thousand dollar scope. I mean, how many of these complicated problems do you really have? And it's like on your point of like a lot of this stuff you don't need a scope for, you know. And and there's also that conversation I see a lot on the forums as well. Is like, well. I don't need a scope because I can fix 90% of the issues without one, you know, and it's, they've got their ways of doing the old coil swap, doing the injector swap, all the, all the different ways that we've learned over the years to quickly diagnose these vehicles. And it's like, by the time you get that scope out of the box and hooked up, I already know what coil's bad, you know, even if it's under a manifold, it's like, how many, how much does it take to pull that manifold off and just do pull that one coil from the back that might be misfire into the front? So there's, there's that argument too, but once you get really good with a scope, there's nothing that you can't fix. 
you know, and it's like, it's tough. And it's, and it just goes back to the same point is like, how much do you invest into your shop and your techs to get into that high level position for them to just kind of stand around? Like (laughs) they're just going to go back to the line tech because that's what makes money is getting on the line and just removing and replacing components. And then once or twice a month, maybe, hopefully not that much, but (laughs) you get these hard issues come in where you got to get the scope out and do this high level diag. I don't know. Like, Obviously, the volume is a shop that's not yeah. as, is probably a lot bigger than mine <laughs> to like to like need a dedicated bay for these diagnostic issues. And then do you really want to spread that word around t- town? Like, hey, guys, if you guys got these problems that you can't figure it out, bring it over to me. I'll figure it out. Like, I don't know if I yeah. want to be one thing I don't that I make be blown very that clear <laughs> is like, hey, you got problem cars. Gladly, I'll look at them. But I'm learning very quickly that if I'm going to be that shop. I have to have full access, which means close a repair order at that shop. I've got a you know general liability insurance and everything else. And so if something happens while I'm on your property working on the diagnosis at your shop, hey, great, it'll get it'll get taken care of. But um, like, hey, I need to talk directly with that customer. So, like, okay, Mister Customer, how much are you willing to spend? You know, while, you know, figuring this problem out because. Um, you know, I'm going to spend three hours asking you questions, looking the vehicle over, looking over the notes so far of the shop, and then I will start looking at it from scratch, starting over myself because something was missed. And some people at that point just say, "Hey, you know what? I'm willing to spend 500 or 300, or just get it done." But usually. The people are out of money at that point and there's no money left. So now it's kind of on the shop and dealers sometimes are like, hey, you know, just figure it out. But, you know, that is really difficult because it's not easy money. It's not, you know, that type of work rarely comes quickly. Like my conclusions rarely happen like very easily. Sometimes it's simple. Like the shop had a misfire code on a Honda Odyssey and I was like, oh, I look at it and he was adamant it wasn't the coils, but then... He read the firing order wrong and sure enough, it was just a coil, you know, and like that I figured out within an hour, but you know, he had spent hours on it because he read this, you know, firing order wrong and like, you know, like there was easier ways to figure that out. Like that's why I always disconnect a coil on that cylinder to make sure I'm actually getting the fire or, you know, firing order right. Like you know, but people don't think like that because, right. you know, they don't haven't been doing drivability for 20 years. So I don't blame people for. Well, it goes back to your, it goes to your uh, yeah. point going back to like getting a fresh set of eyes because you're frustrated. You got a thousand things going on and you took one, one piece of information as, as, as Bible, you know, you read something somewhere and, and then you just kind of ran with that instead of going back and starting from square one again and reevaluating your whole process. Let me make sure that firing order is right. You just I already looked at the firing order. I already, I already, already checked that off the list, you know? And so to have someone come in with a fresh set of eyes, it just changes everything. But I mean, those are few and far between, right? I mean, I've had plenty of vehicles towed in from other shops because they won't start and you throw a couple of gallons of gas in it and they fire right up. Like, well, the gas gauge is broken. Yeah. I'm like, so you didn't think about putting gas in it? <laughs> it happens, you know, like whatever, you know, like it, it, we get to have a good chuckle about it. I can give them a hard time and, and it is what it is. It, you know, it, that one's on me, guys. Don't worry about it. Like, um, but yeah, for the most part, you're going to get something that it's already been to five, six, seven different shops. They've already spent thousands of dollars and then it's on you. And, and we've, I hear the same story all the time. It's like, how, why is it going to be so much? 
well, go talk to the people that didn't fix it. You know, um, I, I just never understood that. I've never understood that that thought process from clients that come in, and and now they're at with you or with the last shop that ho- hopefully they're they're the saving grace, and they don't want to go back to the previous shops that took a bunch of money from them that didn't fix the the problem. You know, because in my head, if I don't fix the problem, I'm not charging you for it. So I have that added anxiety and that added stress. Is like, you know, like how did why can't I be one of the first yeah, shops in line yeah. that got paid to do nothing? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like that sounds way easier than what I'm up against right now. Um, I mean, I don't know. It, it's crazy. And then on, I mean, so a lot of talk about like having a retainer too for diagnostic work. Is that like how do you go about pricing that stuff? Is that you you kind of analyze and then you get a good idea of how much time you're going to spend, or how do you th- well, how do you analyze that situation? Because I'm a mobile mechanic in the area, you know, I. Like today I got a call and it's like, Hey, I'm price shopping for ignition switch. And I knew what it was when, you know, she told me they're making model. And anytime somebody is price shopping, I usually tell them, Hey, look, I'm the same rate as any shop. You might not, you know, get any type of discount. You know, if you go to me in this case, you know, it was a fair price. Even then that fair price without even charging diagnosis was a lot for this customer. It was like 300 bucks for basically for repairing the Wrangler ignition rod breaking where the switch doesn't turn and parts of labor, 300 bucks, no diagnosis fee. I knew what it was over the phone, told her that too. It was really honest. And, and so that's, you know, a lot of what I find is like, there's a lot of people that cannot afford car repair. Like my role growing up as a kid is either fixed it yourself because you couldn't afford a mechanic or you had to set money aside. Well, no one sets money aside for diagnostic fees and tire fees and brake fees. And so everyone as it is, is just, so I find that there's that huge hurdle of financials that now we won't get into, but what do I charge for a diagnostic? I usually tell people, hey, look, it's going to be $250 for me to go in there if it's been looked at before. And that's where we'll start at two, I'm 150 an hour is my labor rate and 250 give you a few hours of my time. We've already talked on the phone, you know, like, but I'm going to go in there with my scopes and everything else, you know, and, and look at it. And usually that is okay. Um, but I get a lot of calls for 25 year old vehicles, you know, early OBD2, OBD1 stuff. And, I'm like, well, why are you calling me? I'm a mobile mechanic, you know, like I can't, I, and I take a lot of them, unfortunately for me, you know, cause I like good data on my scopes, but you know, like I go and I look at this stuff and I'm like, the cost of labor for a technician these days has exceeded the value of these 20 year old cars. And it's like, so what do people do? They go to parts stores or find a shade tree and then it just goes south from there. And I don't. I hate to say it, but people can't really afford diagnosing, let alone repairing a lot of times. And and so I have to just be careful and almost quiz people without before I look at the cars and say, you know, trying to figure out, can you afford what I think it's going to be? You know, can you afford if it's going to be a thousand dollars? Like that's a hard question to ask people without them ever stepping foot in the door of your establishment is like, can you afford if this goes to a thousand or $2,000? Not because I'm trying to rip you off at all, 
but I just know with these codes in this model, this is probably what it's going to end up being. If I can figure that out before I get my hands and RO started, like, oh man, that saves so much heartache. So I, I, I do a good job of like, you know, basically interrogating my new customers to figure out if they can afford what might be going down. So that's just what I do. Yeah. That's a smart way to do it. Yeah. I mean, like having the one thing we get if it comes from other, other shops is having a retainer, um, in a sense of like, we're probably going to have two or three hours in this. So, and it's the same thing. Are you willing to spend five, $600 to figure out what the problem is not to fix it, but just for us to tell you what the problem is. And that's what, Oh, it's going to be that much. Like, yeah. I mean, so you gotta have that conversation. Like, do you want to go buy a new vehicle? Or do you want to fix this one? And I think there's a big, there's been a big push. I don't know for me anyway in this area of, of twenty year old vehicles, um, getting a lot of money invested into them, and to each their own. I mean, if it's me, I'd probably do the same thing too. I don't know about these new vehicles now. <laughs> I mean, they're not getting cheaper to fix, you know. And then you still have the insurance and the registration of a brand new car plus that sixty or seventy thousand dollar price tag on top of everything. And I think that's a conversation I have a lot too. Is you you know that just because it's new doesn't mean it's not going to break. <laughs> it's, I mean, a transmission service is like nine hundred dollars yeah. on an on an eight or nine speed Chrysler transmission. Like it's like it's just the fluid and the filter, and like we're not making a ton of money on it. Like that's all just going for parts and fluid. So you know, you get to an old two thousand Chevy, it's like that's cut almost way below half on a trans service anyways like yeah maybe maybe you should be spending five or six grand to keep this old truck on the road yeah you know you see <laughs> Might so be many the better way to go 2010 2012 grand cherokees hitting these used car lots in these big cities and the air suspension doesn't work and the it's four-wheel drive service light is on and you know and there's the dash is peeling and you know there's all these issues going on because people are only fixing what they need to keep the car running. They're not worried about radios cutting out because like all that stuff is just too much money. And so, and, and so, you know, back to the affordability right. of car repairs. So what do the people do? Most people now, uh, lower middle-class people will go and they'll get a car used or new from a, a dealership and they're going to get an extended warranty. And that's not a bad idea to get an extended warranty, but there's different levels of extended warranties or in-house extended warranty that covers a lot less, or there's a manufacturer's extended warranty like MaxCare, for example, covers almost everything on that car for the same price. Well, what's the dealer going to do? They're going to sell the in-house because they want to make more money. And so the problem that with that lies in CarMax type dealerships where they have their own you know, extended warranty. Um, they don't cover heated seat issues. They may not cover service four-wheel drive issues like those warning lights and, and stuff like that. So you have a lot of these cars rolling around that are halfway broken that no one can afford to fix unless you're a mechanic. And I see a ton of that where just people are just rolling around with like every, it's like a Christmas tree in their car. And they're just like, I just needed to pass smog or I just needed to <laughs> yeah. run um, and stuff like that. But yeah, I don't know. It's like every every BMW on the road. <laughs> I didn't know so much to repair these things. It's like, well, you got the expensive car. But you got the expensive co- repair so costs too. I have a <laughs> shop owner, or a, he owns a construction company locally, and I'm looking at his Porsche, and I was like, and a shop referred me to this, this is the shop's customer. And so that's another thing I'm really good about. I'm like, hey, I helped you on your Porsche, but 
please keep going back to that shop because I don't like snaking other people's work and I don't do repairs past three, past three hours anyways, unless it's a special occasion. Like I'm not really a mobile mechanic. In other words, I'm more of like a diagnostic guy. So, um, yeah, cause I don't want to take any shop's work That's and I don't have time do, anyways, yeah. but, um, but anyways, so I go look at this Porsche and he's like, you know, it was like $350 parts and labor to get this convertible top to work again is what it cost. And I, he was like blown away. He's like, what, how is it only that much? And I said, well, the fluid was $40 from the dealer for eight ounces. And, and then, you know, like the labor, it was pretty easy to put that two ounces in there to get it working again. And he said, do you want to know how much the dealer was going to charge to diagnose that? And I was like, well, how much? He said, $1,000 to diagnose it. And it's probably going to be $10,000 to repair it with all new convertible hydraulic cylinders and everything. And I was like, well, that's, you know, crazy. But yeah, that's the norm. Now you go to the dealerships and it's $1,000 to diagnose something that's 20 years old or $500. If it's 10 to 20 year old vehicle, out of warranty vehicle, they're going to charge a lot of money. Now, some of them are like, oh, check engine light. Yeah. One, 175, $200 to diagnose. But in reality, that's not going to end there. Usually it's like, okay, we need another hour. So we need another couple hundred dollars. And it's like, well, you said it was $200 and then that's tricky. And then if it has an extended warranty, now they can't really go over that time. So that's where you find a lot of guys quitting the dealerships because you're getting more and more of them. Hey, it's got a corroded ground under a shield that took them five hours to figure out. Sorry, we only got an hour because it has the in-house extended warranty that the manu- the dealer owner gets paid a lot on. But tech gets nothing more than an hour for, for this five hours of diag time. And they quit. You know, they quit frustrated. They leave or, you know, whatever. Yep. Absolutely not. So now it's Can't like, well, why do we have a shortage of dealer technicians? And they do surveys about how happy you are at these dealers. And I was always honest. I was like, hey, this is wrong. That's wrong. These extended warranties are wrong. If you're going to have them, make sure you pay, you know, and, you know, it's like healthcare. They won't pay past a certain uh, amount. And you can't call a customer that spent all this money on a new car because they can't afford five grand a year for maintenance and they bought the extended warranty so they can pay a certain amount every month for eight years, includes everything they need. And that, that's fine for everybody in that dealership, except for the master technician that's trying to figure all this out in an hour, you know? So it's just highly frustrating. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, and I mean, you brought up that, that point of, the dealer was going to charge 10 grand and replace everything. And on the surface, I mean, it, it, yeah, we're against that. Like it's, yeah. that's just obviously a shotgun of parts, right? That's like, let's just replace everything and it'll work like a transmission. Same thing. If it's, if it's not shifting right. Yeah. It could be shift solenoid. could be just low on fluid, but if you put a new one in there, it's going to work usually. <laughs> I mean, right. But, but you get my point. And it's like, I think that's where the, 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 the dealership in, in particular is like heading towards, cause that's the only way these techs are getting paid. Is he going to spend five hours or three hours to figure out that that top just needed to be topped off with fluid and there was a leaky line? You know, if it takes him two hours to do that, he only gets paid that hour. Or he could say, you know what, let's just say we need everything. That's going to be a 20 hour job for me. I'm just going to quote that out. That's the, my diag. It needs everything. And I guarantee you that's going to fix it. But it's like, and it just goes back to the point of like, you can't not afford to pay for a diagnostic because that's what happens. And if you've been going to the shop or going to a dealership or wherever you're going and you believe what they say is gospel and they don't take the time to, 
diagnose a vehicle and they were just throwing parts at it, throwing a transmission in it, throwing an engine in it, throwing a whole new convertible top in it. It's like when a lot of those items could have been repaired for a third of the price, right? With a little bit of diag time on it. It's like, that's so important. That's being grossly overlooked. It's like, yeah, it might cost you three, $400 to diagnose it, right. but the repair exactly. might only be a couple hundred dollars, right? If you're able to dive in and, and pinpoint what the issue is, or you could replace all that and spend $5,000, you know, to, it, so it, it just drives me nuts to hear that. And it happens all the time too. I come in, we get vehicles in here and we do the same thing. We diagnose, we fix the problem. Oh man, you just saved me so much money that so-and-so or with the wherever was going to charge me this much to fix it. And it's like, I can't really, f- I mean, I, I got to fault them for it, but I can't really, because I understand the back end of it. And I understand what, what the techs are getting paid. And like, that's just, that's just what makes the most logical sense for them. Cause they're just not getting compensated for the time they should be. If it's under warranty and they can pro- and say the, the top is bad, well then the warranty will pay out all that money to, to replace the whole top. If it was under warranty or whatever, it's like, well, it's just crazy. And yeah, I don't know if it's, a, I don't know if I'd call it incompetence. I think maybe some of it is incompetence where they can't they just don't know what to call out. So they're calling out everything, but maybe part of it too, is they know exactly what it is, but they're just not going to get paid to diagnose it. So, well, you know what, replace it all. You know, that's, That'll fix it. <laughs> you know, I, man, I came from one of the best independent shops for a decade. And then some of the best, what I think are the best to work for dealerships in the County for 10 years. And I would say that, uh, you know, the lube techs at dealers are there because either they just want a job or they want to learn something. So one in 10 wants to move past lube changing. So one, it used to be nine out of 10. Now it's like one or two out of 10 actually want to progress and become better. And so you have even smaller pool to pull from. And now these guys are moving up slowly. But to get to the point where you can t- pull in a car and say, hey, this convertible top isn't working on this vehicle. Um, you know, okay, well, what do you do? Like, you well, you got to figure out how it works. Well, when does he do that? Well, he, he's got to read up the description and operation and pro-demand or something. Well, that's usually not enough. And it's not – so, in other words, he needs years and years of just – street knowledge acquired through touching cars and eventually he'll you know realize that convertible top it has seals that just naturally leak over time like floor jacks that jack up cars naturally some of that fluid goes past those seals it's just like rings on a piston you know that fluid just lost it's you know slipped past the piston seals and that porsche's hydraulic cylinders that open the top close the top just just went past it over time. There's no excessive leak on any of these that I've dealt with, even Chrysler convertible tops. It's just natural leakage over time. Rarely is there an actual large enough leak where you should actually replace things, in my experience. And in that case, but like, how do you know that? There's no service bulletin that says, oh, it's probably normal leakage because they don't, no one really deals with convertible tops that much. But like, yeah, there's nobody in the dealership environment that can easily say, you know, like, oh, yeah, we can just put fluid in that rather than replace it for all, you know, $10,000, just replace all that stuff. 
nobody has that street knowledge is what it really boils down to because nobody's really that invested in their career is is it, it's, yeah it's it's a little yeah a little bit of that and i think a little yeah, bit of common yeah. sense that we're, we're lacking a lot in the industry too i mean some of it's just it's so technically driven right now to like learn as much technical stuff as you can but there's also a lot of common sense stuff that's like you know and it's like the light bulb moment like oh i checked this and i checked this and i'm analyzing that and it's like dude like what what do you think it is well i think it's you know whatever okay that's probably what it is then. Like sometimes it is just the gut check, you know? Sometimes when you're dealing with it, it's like sometimes it's just seat of your pants. Sometimes, well, you know, what I think it is is it's probably this or whatever whatever you're dealing with. It's like, okay, well then we don't need to like analyze and like find these numbers. Like you say, like we don't need to find a problem. Like if there's no problem, then there's no problem. <laughs> you know, and it's nor, nor, normal operator. It's like the DCTs and the Ford Focuses, right? Like that's just how yeah. they shift. There is no fix for it. <laughs> <laughs> it's normal operating. That's just how it is. You know, you can't, you can't fix what's not broken. And, and, and yeah, using that common sense is like, that's huge too. Like you got to have both. And I think, like you said, the common sense just comes from the street smarts and just the veterans of the done it. And you've seen it over and over and over. And you're like, Oh, that's normal. Oh, how do you know that? I just, it is. Trust me. <laughs> trust, trust me. It's fine. You know, and we're, we're, I mean, you can't, no one can teach you that overnight. No one can teach you that in five years. It takes decades to like, just have the confidence to know, like, that's fine. I don't need to know a Bolton. I don't need to read something about it. I just, yeah. that's just how it yeah. is. <laughs> There's a you know? lot of, uh, I mean, my cousin owns a transmission shop in Fresno for 25 years. And, you know, I, I ask him car questions over the years, you know, like, Hey, what do you, what, you know, what do you think about this misfire? What do you think about this scan tool? And, and he's like, honestly, like, I don't know anything about cars. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he's like, I just know how to rip a transmission apart and make it work when it's done. And I do transmissions and that's it. And yeah, he can probably do the programming nowadays. You kind of have to with like Nissan CVTs and stuff. And, you know, modules in the valve bodies but like he knows nothing else but transmissions and that's what needs to happen again in this industry is we need to have a shop that does transmissions we need to have a shop that does electrical we need to have a shop that does drivability we need to have specialized german shop like and we have those shops you have german auto and uh, north county diesel and switzers and other places like that Warren brothers by the way Warren brothers does the ADAS for most shops in this county um, but yeah, it's, you know, like there's still like, there's still no electrical shop. Like there is no, and that's what I'm wanting to become really is an electrical shop. And, but I can't pay the bills by just doing that because I'm a new company. So I have to do other things too. I, I do lockout calls sometimes. I mean, I'll do slim gems for insurance companies if I need the money. So Yeah. And that's, I mean, right. that's what the problem is, 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 is the money. And then you go to these other, you go to smog shops and they're doing transmission replacements, right. And they're doing differential rebuilds and, and you're sitting back and you're holding back and you're like, okay, I'm just going to speak. I mean, that's how I started was a transmission specialist. That's what I, I, w I was rebuilding transmissions. And it's just over the years you get, you get slow and you're trying to pull in this transmit and it's like, dude, I need, 
I need work. And then you get cars coming in with a misfire and they think their transmission's slipping. I couldn't tell you how many of those I turned away. Like, no, you have a misfire. Oh no, I just came from a shop and they said it's the transmission. I'm yeah. like, it's a misfire. Like, <laughs> here, c- get in the car with me. Let me show you. Watch a misfire. See every time yeah. that little number keeps going up and you're feeling the transmission slip. Yeah, that's it's a misfire. And then you send it away. Like, and it's like, and you start looking at the end of the month. It's like, you know, if I would have just fixed that, that would have been, that's money. And so you just start going down that path and it's like, before you, it's like, and so you, beggars can't be choosers. So you just start taking in what you can take in to get, keep the finances rolling. And before you know it, it's like half your business now is transmissions and the other half is auto repair. <laughs> it's like, well, and that's put more money in the bank, you know, it's like, and everyone's just replacing transmissions. And then you look at the cost of the remanufacturers versus what I can rebuild it for. Wow. I'm not really like saving anybody any money. Um, so it's just, it's just what happens. It's the evolution, but you're right. It, it'd be, it would be a totally different, totally different industry. If we went back to how it was, you had your transmission guys, you have your different specialized areas. And like with ADAS, it's like the same thing, but how many of these guys, you said all the lights, you know, Christmas trees on these cars now, right? How many of these people are going to want to fix their ADAS problems? So if you're an ADAS specialty shop, are you really going to be busy? Is that like, is that really going to be something people are coming to you specifically for, especially when any other general auto shop can go buy that calibrator and hire some kid and say, Hey, just make sure it's in the arrows, just like an alignment, right? Just make sure it's in the green and you're good to go. It's like, how much variance is there going to be? And is anybody even going to notice, you know, like, does anyone ever say, Oh man, after you aligned it, my car rides so much better. No, <laughs> They might be like, hey, my tires last like 10,000 miles more. Probably not. They're not noticing. They just, when it needs tires, they go get tires. Who who calculates how many miles are getting out of their set of tires, <laughs> you know? And so it's just so much variance there that it's so hard to have specialized yeah, And the other thing you got to realize anymore. about ADAS, if you want to get into that, and I really try and avoid ADAS, but there's dynamic ADAS, like Chrysler products. A lot of their ADAS calibration is done dynamically with the scan tool, scan tool routine. So if you do a front camera and a RAM that has full surround view camera, so you see the top view of your car when you back up in your nice RAM truck, that front camera needs to be calibrated if it's, you know, been off the grill or it has a new camera. And so you'll see that. That's a dynamic drive it, make a left, make a right, go two miles an hour. The scan tool tells you what to do as you're driving it. There's no board involved. But then you have Wagoneers that have sensors that need to be used a board and lasers and stuff. That's a you know static static ADAS, I'll call it. Well, that requires a lot of setup time. And the problem with that is, like, if you do it wrong, if that car gets an accident, more and more insurance companies are you know going to the people that calibrated it last and saying, "Hey, let's see your paperwork. You know, did you document that you did that one procedure?" and that's going to be more and more of people, I think, you know, lawyers getting involved and they're like, oh, well, let's sue the dealership because they didn't, you know, they didn't do a calibration when they had that grill off to the radiator. Maybe it's, you know, independent that did it. So more of these sensors that you have, it's a big reason why Tesla doesn't like selling parts to independent shops because they want to make sure everything is calibrated. But more and more you're seeing people getting sued as, shop owners because their guy didn't calibrate that front camera on that radiator job. That's just something to think about. Like it's, it's going to get crazy with these semi-autonomous cars. 
Yeah. Especially with the, yeah, when you get attorneys involved, because there's, as we all know, there's the procedure way of doing it and then there's the common sense way of doing it, right? And if you, if you find a way to calibrate something or for, or you say like, for example, the alignment, yeah, there's like the procedural way, but there's some of those steps that may or may not get overlooked. But at yeah. the end of the day, you're just trying to get the right. thing aligned. You're just trying to get everything set to where it needs to be set, right? And so they're just going to be digging through the paperwork. Oh, look, you didn't do step three. It's like, that doesn't, that's, that's stupid. Like no one does that, right? Like nobody does that step. Like you don't need to. Nope, you didn't do it. So now you're on, now it's your, it's like that kind of stuff there is the, what the problem is going to be. And I think not having it mandated as a safety item yet, I think that's, that's probably going to give a little bit of leeway there. But as soon as it's mandated as a safety item in a vehicle, that's just when it all, it's all going to go. I mean, yeah. I don't know if it's a good idea to get into it or stay out of it. It's like the smog program. Like I got out of the smog program. I don't want anything to do with those people. <laughs> the the amount of responsibility that they mount on you for the like, no, I'm good for fifty bucks a car, and you no, I'm good. I don't, I don't, I don't need the bureaucracy yeah, in my and shop. The bureau automotive repair, <laughs> I'm good. you know, they have the referee. So if your monitor isn't sitting on your vehicle, your diesel ram truck, say it's a Knox monitor, and you're like, okay, well, here's a checklist that needs to go with the customer to that dealership, and Basically, it's given the dealership rights to spend thousands of dollars on parts because one of the things that they want done is open a star case. Well, this, you know, star case, back to the technical assistance side of dealerships, they're going to say, well, check these temp sensors, do this, clean that, wiggle this, tighten that. And next thing you know, there goes $5,000 just to see if you can set a monitor. And really what had to happen is all they had to do was go in there and look at the, the data in the OBD2 mode 9 or 10, and it would show that the NOx monitor has never set in the life of the vehicle, meaning that there's a software anomaly that, or it's got a tune, and it's got, you know, it probably just needs to be soft, uh, updated again, reflashed, overflashed. And, you know, that type of stuff happens more and more on these diesels. And, you know, like, but nobody knows to look there yet because nobody's like the technical writers for dealerships are just guys like you and me. They're like, Hey, what should step one be? You know, Mr. Engineer car company on this misfire code. Oh, we'll check this. All right. Well, what do I write next? Like they're just getting orders from somebody in a car company's department that thinks they know how they should diagnose their product. That doesn't mean that's a logical avenue to take, you know? So anyways. Right. Yeah, they try to yeah. keep it as simple as possible for themselves well, anyway. Most, code, they don't most trouble charts on Chrysler's is like, oh, uh, you have a map sensor circuit high code. Disconnect both ends, engine computer end and sensor end. Ohm out circuits, cross, check for cross shorts, check for this, check for that. None of it says back probe it, check for five volts, check for signal ground back probed, and check signal back probe because now your sensor has got a complete circuit. You know, like it, you know, rarely does it say anything logical in there. So it's wasting two hours of time to get to all this stuff. And then rather than the logical steps, there's no logic in most of those trouble charts. It's usually some engineer talking to a technical writer, telling him what to write, and then it just they think it makes sense, but they're not the ones that actually diagnose. So, Yeah. I feel like it's too hard for them to actually, yeah, be able to write that out. Just like the way you had just 
mentioned it now. Like, why would it be so hard to do that? Why would it be so hard to check reference voltage? Why would it be so hard to check the signal output and actually put what the signal output is supposed to be at sea level versus, you know, whatever? Like, what is what am I looking for? You know, what's my what's my end goal here? Am I, so I'm just I'm just testing the resistance of the wire and the harness. Right. Oh, get real! Like that's, <laughs> that's like a, having your Christmas lights not work and then disconnect the extension cord in between and and go to the hardware store and buy a meter and then plug the meter in to check each end for continuity rather than hey you know maybe there's a, a cut in the wire or bulb out you know like I don't know so yeah it, it, it is here the flow charts and. I mean, it is gospel for most to go through there and at least check that. It's a good place to start. But how many problems do you actually find going through a flow chart, especially with the Chrysler stuff? It's like, uh, no, it, it doesn't make any damn sense. I mean, don't even look at the scan tool. Like, you can put that in the flow chart. Like, check scan tool data. <laughs> you should see at sea level so many inches of vacuum. Like, at least give something. But most of us just jump on YouTube because that's the only way you can find some logical information, you know? someone's someone's uploaded it somewhere and at least now we have some sort of frame of reference like okay well the scan tool data looks good or it doesn't now we know what our problem is you know we can go from there but yeah it's it's yeah it's, it's when it comes to the diagnostic stuff and that's why i hate when people say that we're you know stonewalling or or you're putting too much information out there it's like you can't have too much information out there it takes yeah y- you could skip to the end of the video and just replace the part that the person in the video replaced that fixed that problem but i guarantee that 90 percent of the time that's not going to fix the problem and you've totally missed everything um yeah. i'm sure you watched paul danner scanner danner and so like I-, I talked with him about the same thing it was like you're missing the point if you're skipping to the end of the video you're missing the whole point of the content like he's showing you how the system is operating so that you can use that reference for your repair not because you have that exact same vehicle with that exact same code <laughs> drives me nuts like that you're missing the point he's like showing you in real time and real world the functions of that circuit or the system and that way watch, you can apply it correctly <laughs> you ever watch uh, not skip to Chuck the end and replace Chuck? that part <laughs> he's on he's on tiktok so oh, i try and avoid no. I don't as much I... tiktok as i possibly can but about a year ago i got on there and i quickly realized there's great information from other technicians and shop owners but um you know this guy's a mobile tech in i think i don't know east coast somewhere and he goes around and he explains like hey you have a subaru that has a uh whatever code and he goes through and looks at the data like hey look at the fuel trim here and this is why I think it wasn't, he's really good at explaining in simple ways how important looking at your data is because I can't tell you how many times working wherever I worked that if I know, let's say, you know, like a barrow sensor reading, if I know on a Ford what a normal barrow Hertz is, and then I get in a car at sea level and it's off, I that's, you know, one of the things I look at if it's a dryability issue in any way is like I always on a Ford, I go at a barrel hurts. Like you learn things and what data is very important to look at based on the complaint of the customer. If it's fuel economy, dryability, you want to look at fuel trims, you want to look at barrel, you want to look at loads. And then, you know, and then you just really kind of go from there. But if you give somebody a no trouble code, poor fuel economy complaint in your shop, it's like, 
you better make sure that they know how to understand every part of that data, you know, because there's so much data in today's cars, you know, there's so much engine data. Like I can't explain even some of it. Like I had Toyota the other day. I'm like, I don't know what that acronym even means. I had, I could find nothing on it, but it had to do with uh, like load value. It was like, uh, there was like five different PIDs of load values on this Toyota. And I'm like, I don't know what that, and it was in the freeze frame. And little side note, Toyota is really good about time stamping their freeze frame. So if you have a Toyota text stream, um, you can get, you know, a text stream for not too much money and you can go in there and you can look at the timestamp freeze frame. It's beyond what your Autel or Snap-on will do. And it gives you like a lot of like exact time of day it set, uh, set the code, the date, you know, like somehow it ties in with the radio. So it knows like all kinds of information that's really valuable for freeze frame beyond freeze frame. So. Yeah. Knowing how to, yeah. Get all that, that kind of information is what's the most important part though. And then knowing what you're looking at. I mean, you know, still guys out there that don't know what an O2 sensor, what's rich and what's, what's lean, you know, and then, and then beyond that, again, the air fuel ratio sensors. And it's like, if, if you're trying to mess with a drivability issue and you don't know what your O2 sensors are supposed to be doing, you just need to put the scan tool away and walk, (laughs) put it down and walk away. But I mean, more, the more learnings, the better, but still like learn some of the basics and going through the smog program taught me a lot of that, but th- that's missing a lot too, is looking through that stuff. And yeah, and I, I think filling that space with mobile techs that are into that high level diag stuff is obviously kind of the wave of the future, like I said. So I think there's definitely high hopes for, well, for I hope you so. what I you're mean, trying to do for I sure. I hope that it works out. And if not, I had a, a recently retired mechanic. He's like, yeah, I'm driving trucks around the construction sites with a class a license and like making 80 bucks an hour i'm like yeah screw you like i was like yeah that just goes to show you like guys can climb poles and you know for pg&e and get 150 bucks an hour after eight hours of overtime and like they're doing all this crazy stuff but it's like a lot of it is easier than what we do for a living a lot of it, it's just, you know, we only have so yeah. much money that we can get out of a customer. And so, you know, we can only pay ourselves so much as shop owners because there's only so much money to be had, you know, without lying to people, without ripping people off. And in this county, you do that, you're going to close down in two years because people talk, you know. So, like, thank God it's a small county and we have some yeah. great shop owners and some really honest shop owners. I, I can say that about every shop I've been to, but like there is only so much money to be, you know, had. And so it's a real tricky situation to try and pay somebody really, really well when guys are, you know, working, driving trucks around at $75 an hour is like, how do you compete with that? Like, that's super difficult. Yep. That's, yeah, that is, that is, uh, the, the, the biggest problem we deal with trying to hire someone and for me to pay them say 60 or 70 an hour and workers almost $90 an hour after taxes, you know? Yeah. And so, and to have the labor rate at 150, 160, 170, that's still not enough to pay someone that kind of money. Your labor rate's got to be over $200 an hour. Um, it's just hard to justify that. I mean, how do you, 
you like you said, you can't just keep adding more money onto your labor rate to make up for that. Uh, you can add it on your parts. Sure, you can start marking your parts up, but you start adding 70, 80% markup on your parts. They're going to, people can look online. They can see like, you know, go down to the parts store, the list, when you start selling parts over list price, they're not going to pay for it. They're going to find a cheaper alternative for it. You know, um, it's, it's a tough situation. I don't know. I don't know what, what the future holds, but we just got to keep moving forward. And I guess the main thing is, is do you want to drive a truck or do you want to fix cars? Cause realistically, it's not really all about the money. You got to make a living, you got to pay your bills, but I've been out of the industry and came back. There's multiple guys that have done the same thing and girls, right? You get out, you do something else for the money and you just realize, man, I just don't want to do this. <laughs> I want to go back and fix cars, you know? And so part of it is like, you know what? If you like what you do and you're paid a little less, that might be the way to go. But, you know, being in California, yeah, it's well, uh, it's more yeah, about the money right now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I... we. Yeah, what we do the rent's not going is down. really something that should be, you know, we should be thanked a lot for, every mechanic should be thanked a lot for what they do because, you know, the days of guys, you know, having a mortgage and a new car payment and their wife not working as a mechanic at a dealership, those days are just gone completely. Um, you know, I can't speak for independence, but, you yeah. know, the guys that are making money at the dealers is one guy per dealership in this county that's making over $100,000 a year. And the rest are just like at $50,000 a year income. And they're like, okay, well, here's a CAN bus issue. Go ahead and spend a week on it because we're not paying you really all that much money. But that guy making one hundred and fifty grand doing transmission overhauls, you know, in way quick time because he's done a bazillion of them. Yeah, he's making a lot of money as he should be because he's gotten that good at it. But all the other guys are like, well, I'm not really ever going to get to the transmission work because he's not teaching me anything. And so I guess I'll figure out these random network issues or random misfire issues. But they don't have the foundation to even accurately diagnose it, unfortunately. So, yeah. It's like try yeah, this. Yeah, they just get lucky most of the time. And, yeah. and then when a problem comes up, they don't know what to do. Yeah. Well, right on, man. Well, another shout out your uh, uh, YouTube channel. Uh, it's and then uh, the name of your shop or your uh, mobile, mobile mechanic. And I don't think I ever did the introduction. Yeah, it's Justin's last up name. <laughs> yeah, and cool. And you're located right yeah. here, uh, local More, well, California, uh, Los uh, Grover, right? So, yeah. But yeah, I live in Morro okay. Bay and I try and work out of, you know, South County, well, Central County. So San Luis, Morro Bay, Los Osos. I don't like driving up the, you know, I drove to Paso for three years and driving up the 41 kind of scares me. A lot of accidents. So trying to avoid it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't blame you. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you coming yeah, on. This I, has can, been, I can this has been good. A lot of good information. I'm glad. I'm glad you reached out because I was like, I was a little, I was a little rough with you at first because I had so many people on my job posting. Well, yeah, I, was I know like, some people were, you know, with naturally talk crap, and <laughs> I was just like, hey, I'm, you know, like mainly I was like Eric Faley, you know, talks a lot of good things. He says a lot of good things about you, and and so I said, you know, hey, let these shop owners know I'm out there if they ever get a problem car and they're just too busy to diagnose it. You know, I, I can I can give it a shot, or if they want to borrow scan tools, like I'm not. 
against for you know a decent price, like somebody can use a text stream or something, or maybe I can teach a class. I don't know, but yeah. So he, I just saw it post on your. Sorry, I posted on a job listing. So <laughs> that worked. That worked out. 